And now, as we prepare to hear the preaching of God's word, I want to ask you to give your attention to today's scripture reading, which comes from Psalm 139, verses 1 to 12, and verses 23 to 24. This is the reading of God's word. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and, the, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And all God's people said, Amen. At this time, as we welcome Pastor Harold up to the stage to give us God's word, may I ask you to do something a little bit old school. When I say hallelujah, would you say amen? And when I say amen, would you say hallelujah? And say it so loudly that the hair on Pastor Harold's neck will stand up, okay? Hallelujah. Amen. amen. Come on, Pastor. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Without exaggeration, this is probably one of the most beautiful things I've seen in about 15, 16 months. No insult to my family and friends. I was losing it driving here. Uh, I got emotional during the sound check. And Pastor Jimmy was warning and preparing me since weeks ago, Pastor Held, you're going to lose it, you're going to lose it. I'm not going to lose it completely want to try to get into this passage of scripture, but I do not ever want to forget to say thanks be to God for Sunday worship together with the people of God. I am not going to move forward and take that for granted ever again. My soul, my heart, my mind, I realize more than ever how much I need you, my brothers and sisters, how much I need your voices in singing, how much I need your prayers, and God is my witness. I do not do this because of 
a position or income or anything like that. I do this because this is what I'm made for. It's to worship God with you. There is no greater, greater fulfillment or joy in life. So thanks be to God. Thank you, God. Hey, I'm going to ask you just for a couple seconds. Uh, we might be breaking some rules. You don't have to get out of your seat. Say hi to these beautiful faces behind the mass. Say hi. Let's say hi to one another, to our right, to our left, in front of us and behind us. What a privilege and pleasure this is. Okay. Pastor Jimmy read for us Psalm 139, which is going to take two weeks to study, to be taught, and hopefully most of all transformed by the Spirit of God as we look upon this marvelous, <clears throat> this marvelous, marvelous poem. Uh, I just want to echo thanks to all of the production team, our ops team, our volunteers, those of you who've been holding on and praying and giving and loving, even through small groups, hoping, waiting, I want to thank you all so much, but ultimately it's God who has brought us together today on this Sunday for worship. And if you have forgotten by now, what we're supposed to do on Sunday worship is to look at God and worship God. Because the scriptures say, the more you and I look at God and worship God for who he is, for, who he is, for his attributes, you, uh, you and I actually become godly. We become as he is. The more we get to look at and worship God, we become as he is. There is no loftier goal in life. But today, we're going to look at two attributes of God that we can never become. We're actually going to look at two today, one more next week. These are attributes of God that old theologians call incommunicable attributes, meaning these attributes of God cannot be shared, transferred. Uh, you and I cannot even get a taste of it. Uh, they cannot be communicated. And so today in this marvelous poem, we're going to look at two incommunicable attributes of God, next week the third. But we still get to, of course, look at and worship God for who he is. First, the omniscience of God, the omniscience of God. Uh, you could say it's the omniscience of God. Look at verses 1 through 5. We're going to project it right here. And as you trace and look over at verses 1 through 5, notice how the all-knowing of God surrounds us entirely and completely. Just look through those amazing truths in poetry. The knowledge of God is inescapable. See, the psalmist and you and I, we are not lost in a cold and chaotic, random, 
meaningless cosmos? No. <clears throat> the omniscience, the all-knowing of God, entirely surrounds us. Verses 2 and 3. Every move you make, every breath you take. I'm not going to continue on those lyrics. But every movement, sitting or rising. God, you've searched me. You know me. Second half of verse 2. All my thoughts. Right now in your seats, all your thoughts. All those inaudible, invisible thoughts. Your dreams last night. God, you have searched and know me all my movements, all my thoughts. Even at the deepest subconscious layers. Verse 4. All my words. All my words. God, you know the words before I even speak them, articulate them before they are uttered. Oh, the omniscience of God. Here is an attribute that you and I cannot mimic, you cannot attain, you cannot achieve. It shows who God is and shows who we are not. This is what God alone can do. Uh, you and I cannot do. The all-knowing attribute of God. The omniscience of God. I'm struck by verse 5. You hem me in behind and before me. What does it mean that God is before me? Well, from the vantage point of God, believe it or not, God knew you before you came into existence. I'm not even talking about abortion here. I'm not even talking about the impersonal collection of cells, which we're going to talk about next week. Before you were even conceived. Now, pastor, stop making stuff up. Today you might be a little bit too fantastic in your expressions. Jeremiah chapter 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, I consecrated you. The word of the Lord came to me, to the prophet, said, before I even formed you in the womb, O Jeremiah, God the creator knew you. Now how in the world does God the maker know you before you exist? Here's why. Because God is not trapped by time. It's technically incorrect to say, oh, God is in the present. We know what you mean, but theologically speaking, you're off. God is really not in the present as if limited or trapped in present moments. God knew Jeremiah before he was conceived. God knew you before you were conceived. God knew me before I was conceived. This is his omniscience at work. God knew you before the pandemic. God knows you during the pandemic. God knows you after the pandemic. This is a distinction between who God is and what he can do versus who we are and what we cannot do. Because to God, he sees all things happening at once. God is timeless. He's outside of time, space. Those are creations of God. Meaning, God sees pre-pandemic, during pandemic, post-pandemic, Harold, at once. 
It's not like he's ever confused or thrown off or shocked or traumatized. This is what it means to be omniscient. This is our omniscient God. From our little vantage point, here's how we see ourselves. Oh, I'm young. Or I'm old. Oh, I was once not married. I can't wait to be married. Oh, that marriage didn't work out. We see little slivers of ourselves and of reality. Little slivers of reality. God sees them all at once. For baseball fans out there, do you know who are, who are the, uh, the players leading in home runs this year? Three of those characters go by the name of Junior. They're all 22 and 23 years old. Guerrero Junior, Tatis Junior, Acuna Junior, 22 and 23. And I look upon their bodies and their agility and their speed and their skill and their power with some envy. And I think, oh, if I only had a 22, 23-year-old body. But with a 50-year-old mind. You know, don't some of you joke, oh, if I went back to undergrad, college, or high school, how much more you would learn now? But here's the joke that's played on us. You think you're so smart now at 50. You're going to look back at that and say, oh, I was so dumb. I still don't know. You and I worship a God who is all comprehensively knowing. He's not even trapped by time. So here's the truth. Oh, it's all the rage of your identity and sexuality these days. Who are you? Who is the real you? Who is the authentic you? Who is the true you? And I happen to think one of the worst things you can come to believe in is just follow your own heart. I don't think that's from the Holy Scriptures. There is some truth to that. But please listen to me carefully. There's nuance here. There's some truth to it, but here's the truth. Until God's knowledge of you, because he knows you infinitely better than you know yourself. If he is omniscient, he knows you better than your spouse. He knows you better than your best friend. He knows you better than your counselor therapist. He knows you better than 360 reviews. He knows you better than your employees. He knows you better than all the introspection. All the diary and journaling you can do. All the meditating and praying you can do. God, who is omniscient, knows you infinitely better than you. Therefore, you don't really know you until God shares his knowledge with you. You will never actually really know the true, real you until God reveals until you humbly receive. That is the knowledge of God about me. Therefore, that is ultimately, eternally true. <laughs> For the psalmist, while the loudest and most vicious voices around him mock him and his God in verses 19 to 22, we'll look at that next week. Here, he receives his true identity outside of his immediate surroundings, outside of even his own voice. Listen carefully. Here in Psalm 139, 
Where does he get his real authentic identity? Not from other people, peer pressure, online, social media. He doesn't even get it from himself. He gets it upward and outward from his maker. Let's look at the second stanza now. Look at and worship God for who he is. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. Here's second. Verses 7 through 12. He's omnipresent. The omnipresence of God. The all presence of God. Verses 7 through 12. And oh, how I appreciate James Coe leading in worship that second song. Although new, it's straight from Psalm 139. Thank you, brother. Look at verses 7 through 12. I'll read it for us. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Whereas modern poetry and rap rhymes words, Hebrew poetry rhymes ideas. Here, this poet rhymes opposite polarities to communicate the depths and the breadth of the omnipresence of God. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, can you go any higher? You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol, the word for that in Hebrew is, that's the place of the dead. That's rock bottom. There's real rock bottom. There's the pit. But even down to the bottom depths, oh God, you are there. From the heavens to the grave, God is there. From the highest heights to the lowest depths, God is omnipresent. Oh, but he also expands out to the furthest lengths, too. Verse 9. If I take the wings of the morning, he's speaking of sunrise. Where does the sun rise? To the east. To the east. If I go furthest, farthest, fastest that I can to the east, God, you are there. And then he turns around and says this, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. From the point of view of Israel, the sea is to the west. It's the Mediterranean. Even if I go furthest and fastest and hardest as I can all the way to the west, the opposite direction, God, you are there. Now we can better understand verse 7. Now I think this gives you context to understand verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Now I know... The, uh, this may sound uh, maybe wonderful at first, but actually it's not. The Hebrew word for presence is panim or face. And so here is what the psalmist is actually admitting to. High or low, east or west, God, I keep running into your face. You remember the story of Jonah? Oh, I can relate to Jonah, that reluctant, dragging his feet preacher did not want to go to those evil, wicked people who committed atrocities, child sacrifices, tortured his people. 
God told him, I want you to go and preach to them so that they could be saved. He ran the opposite direction. But when he was running the opposite direction, he finds himself on a pagan ship, a ship full of non-believers. But Jonah runs into the voice and presence of God on that pagan ship. He gets thrown overboard the ship. He goes into the sea, gets swallowed by a whale. There, Jonah runs into the presence of God through the whale. The whale vomits him onto the land. Nineveh, the last place Jonah ever wanted to be. And even in Nineveh, what does Jonah run right back into? The Spirit of God, because there's a massive revival that breaks out. From the possibly the worst sermon that was ever preached. It was the turn and burn sermon. Just turn and burn. No compassion, no tears, no eloquence, nothing. He actually wants them all to be condemned. But God's spirit is there. Here's the thing about the omnipresence of God. It's not relative. It's not leaky. Did you know that God's presence is as present over there where you think is so unholy and so dirty and filthy and it's filled with all these evil people as much as it might be here right now at Hope International University? Did you know that God's spirit doesn't work like that? It's not like he gives off little portions over here so that if you hide and run over there into your bedroom, you have less of God's presence and less of his omniscience? No, 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 no. We have a God who is absolute, all-knowing, all-present. And Jonah could not run. Inescapable. So here's the question. How is this anything but troubling and threatening? How is this anything but traumatic and troubling and threatening? Listen, my friends, God knows you better than, he knows your thoughts and words before you even think them or say them. He knows everything. God knows everything. Everything. Your medical history, your marriage, all your trips, all your income, all your giving, all your relationships. And he's present? He's present in every bathroom, in every corner, in every hotel. God is present. How is this anything but threatening? <laughs> so now we can understand verse 6. Now we can understand verse 6. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Again, at once, at first it sounds, he's praising God for it. Now I beg to differ now. I know we sang it as a part of praise, but musicians are really moody and they don't get it right sometimes. Here in verse 6, this is not a positive sounding expression. It's actually flight or fight syndrome put into activity. Where can I go? Where can I run? This is too high. He meaning too wonderful is, I can't handle it. I can't take it. I can't breathe. I'm suffocating. It's too much for me to process and handle. That's really what the poet is saying. He goes so far as to say, I believe in this verse. He's saying, God, if I can't run anywhere, if I can't do anything, 
If I can't think anything, if I can't say anything without you knowing and you being there, I don't know how I'm going to live. That's what he's saying in verse 6. And if you ever deal with God and his Bible straight, it's threatening. It's lethal. How can it not? But let me clue you into something. Even though it's lethal and it's threatening, do you know that's part of worshiping God? Some of you in this room run from anything that might be threatening. You don't even want to avoid, you just want to, you don't want to deal with it. Let me, let me suggest something. You can't worship God that way. Because part of worshiping God is to be threatened by God more than you are threatened by anything else. Part of the worship of God Sunday after Sunday with, the God, with God's people is to be, and frankly, overwhelmed by God more than you are overwhelmed by every other trouble and threat and difficulty in the world. So verses 7 through 10, this is just fight or flight. Up or down, east or west, I cannot escape. David the poet, it says, this is to the choir master, a psalm of David. He wrote this. He can't stand an all-knowing, all-present, and next week, all-powerful God. He can't stand it. So how can you and I stand it? How can you and I stand this? How in the world is this a psalm to sing about and praise God with? At our worst, it's obvious God is a lethal threat. But even at our best, even at our best, what is God like? Here in the United States of America, a country I love, I am thankful for. And July 4th is around the corner. As we seek a more perfect union, we got to be straight with history too. The glories and the pitfalls. The joys and the bruises. Do you know what we're like? Do you know what everyone's like in America? You can take a great idea, which I believe is from God, of democratic, self-determination, limited government. We love freedom. Freedom from things. And people should be held accountable. But we can take that idea of political self-determination and limited government, get off my back, don't tell me anything I should do, mask or not mask or vaccine or not, come on, get, it, get out of my face. Because as an American, I am free to be me. No one gets to tell me what I can be or what I cannot do. And if you take away that kind of freedom or right, I say life is not even livable. Life is not even livable. So we take a great idea and we elevate it to the point of ultimate reality. It becomes the mantra of life. It becomes the very meaning and religion to life. It's an all or nothing reality. Is this not really you and I? Isn't this how culture and education disciples and shepherds us to this day? But here's the greatest threat. Here's the problem we're just going to keep running into over and over and over and over again. If that's how you understand life, if that's how you understand freedom, if that's how you understand how things should be, and all-knowing, all-present, 
all-powerful God is an absolute nightmare. If that's the way you understand and want to live your life, then this God, oh, this God, what do you do with him? Even better, what does he do with you? See, this is where the philosophers, of course, for centuries, and they're never going to resolve this puzzle. They're going to articulate, argue, wrestle, succumb, overcome, side pass, bypass, all philosophers. You know you can't stand living under God, but you can't live without God. And in that tension and in that threat is exactly where the psalmist finds himself today. So let's close with this. Not only is God omniscient, omnipresent, but he offers his life-saving hand. Do you see it in verses 11 and 12? Look at verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. What is darkness? It's never, never good in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever been plunged into complete darkness. There was that high school wilderness trip. Only the stars overhead gave some kind of light, but it was a little frightening to be alone out in the wilderness of Arizona by yourself with no lights. But I'm talking about a darkness in which you can't even see your own hand. You can't see any walls or anything underneath or overhead. And you feel despair. And all you can do is cry, cry out for some help, cry out for some light. You know, I cannot possibly know the kinds of darkness that you have experienced while we've been apart for too long. But I do know mine. I do know mine. You know, last year, I pride myself on being a driven person. A person in certain ways, if you're driven to it, will do it well. And I've shared with you before, uh, last year going into sabbatical, first time in my life, gone. <laughs> it was frightening. The drive was entirely gone, sapped or waned. And I didn't know what to do with it. And my entire future looked obsolete and dark. And I needed a redirection or a resurrection. Now what if, what if though, according to the psalmist, after he's saying I'm suffocated, I'm fight or flight mode. I don't know what to do with a God who knows and is everywhere where I am. Then he turns around in verses 11 and 12. And here's what he's saying. But what if in that complete darkness, you have a God who cannot ever lose sight of you? What if in your deepest, darkest, worst darkness, that darkness is actually light to God? What if you have a God who in your scariest moments of life cannot and will not forget you 
because he loves you. Oh, those days that felt like nights and those many, many seemingly sleepless, endless nights. What if even at that moment, God, all-knowing, all-present, lays his hand upon you and gives you life? On a recent trip, my family at an airport, airports are getting crowded now, if you didn't know, and flights are packed, and one trip was to Denver, Colorado. It's so good to be up in nature and up in the mountains. I saw this adorable little girl, spread eagle sprawled out on the bottom of, uh, you know, just on the floor at the gate. She had her backpack as some kind of body comforter, but she was so sprawled out and still, she looked dead. And then when the person at the gate said, it's time to board, I saw her dad just come up, just gently, gently tap her and say, it's time to get up. She sprang up like a gymnast. So I was all the more impressed by this girl. Wow, no complaining or crying. Incredible. She looked like she was dead and just sprang back to life. It makes you think of Mark chapter 5. When Jesus is brought into the home of a temple ruler, a synagogue ruler, whose daughter lay dead. And there is mourning and wailing and wailing and mourning and mourning and wailing and wailing and mourning because it was the custom that professional mourners would come and wail for you. And the richer or wealthier you were, the more you would have. So you can imagine in this synagogue ruler's home, this is a throng, a crowd of mourners. And the girl lays dead. Look at it, but we pick up here in verse 38, Mark chapter 5. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. Here we have Jesus sitting down by a dead girl, taking her by the hand and saying, Talitha kumi, which Mark tells us it's a tender address, full of affection. Hey, parents in the room, it's like what you say to your children on a routine morning to get up for school. Oh, little one, time to get up. And she got up. Do you know that Jesus is able to reach down to the deepest, darkest places take you by the hand and bring you back to life and get you up. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've thunk, no matter what you felt, no matter how long or brutal or dark this pandemic has been for you, when you and I are prone to give up, Jesus never gives up, but he gets you up. 
he get you up? Because he extends his life-saving hand. Uh, this is why by the end of the psalm, it's almost head spinning, verses 23 and 24, he concludes this way, 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Question, how is it possible around the middle of the psalm he is troubled and threatened, running as far and wide and deep and high as he can away from the presence of God. But by the end of the psalm, he's saying, I want total scrutiny. Oh God, I want you to know everything about me inside out. And then has the audacity to say at the end, and I want you to accept me still. I want you to lead me still. I want you to love me still. So how did this happen? How did this amazing movement occur? Next week we'll look at it in verse 18, but I'll just give you a little tease today. <laughs> just a little tease. How in the world did this psalmist move from being troubled and threatened to closing with, God, I want you to know everything and anything about me. And I think you're still going to accept and love and guide me still. How did that occur? If you've been around our church at any time, but if you're here for the first time, I'm so glad you're joining us. Ultimately, how many psalms are about Jesus Christ? How many psalms are ultimately about Jesus Christ? 150. Every single one. All of them. Because here's what David did. Even though he didn't know exactly how, he still trusted God with praise. Even though David didn't know how, he banked on God's mercy and love somehow covering him in spite of all of his knowledge of him. But you and I today, we know much better than David. We can precisely know why and how this movement happened, and we then ought to trust God all the more with praise. You see, the reason why David could move from being threatened to inviting total scrutiny is for God to find and take David by the hand in complete darkness and get him up and raise him up to new life, one day he would have to let go of the hand of his own son, Jesus Christ, turn off all the lights, and plunge him into complete darkness at the cross. Do you know why Jesus suffered those kinds of agonies? Do you know why Jesus suffered and experienced that kind of abandonment? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How in the world does this psalmist and you and I get to say, God, everywhere I go, you're with me. But Jesus, the son, one day said, for the first time in forever, God, I feel your absence. I feel your loss. This is absolutely the worst type of thing I've ever felt. I hope you know. And I hope you do get to know today. Jesus 
got what you and I deserve. For everyone trying to run away from God, you deserve the abandonment and absence of God. But if you run into the arms of Jesus, if you run into the arms of Jesus, listen, if you run into the arms of Jesus, you get God as your father forever. And all of his knowledge and all of his presence is all filtered through holy love for you. Holy love, that's perfect love, infinite love, infallible love, pure love, the love of all loves. If you run into the arms of Jesus, his omniscience, his omnipresence, next week his omnipotence, all will work for you, never against you. And he will never let you go. God, because of Jesus, will never let you go. Ever. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you this day. You call and gather us to worship you, to sing and to pray and hear from your holy word. And I pray, oh God, that this would bring new life bring us running and falling into the arms of Jesus so we might become more like him as you receive us in holy love. Receive now our praise. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.